went in with her, I was 17 or something, and the, uh, or 18, and the doctor said, did you bring your physical therapist with you? And she laughed, she goes, no, this is my son. And he goes, man, he really looks like a physical therapist. This is Ruckus Makers, a show about entrepreneurs where the mission matters and the status quo isn't an option. I'm your host, Zach Reinard, and in today's episode, we're talking with Brian Wright, the founder and CEO of Wright PT. He fought to never let himself be a limiting factor to the growth of his organization. The result? They're the fastest growing physical therapy clinic in Idaho. Uh, Funny story, I doubt you're a sprint anymore but I used to have your account number memorized and I think I still do. Wow. And it's kind of funny. So like- You're like when, the Rain Man. No, it's weird that way. Like it's just, it was one of your accounts that I remembered. I was like, hey, that's crazy. Like, <laughs> I think I still know that account number. So that was, but, yeah, that was back, what, 10 years ago? Yeah. Right, PT started 13 years ago. And so yeah. I've known you pretty much as long as I've been in business. Yeah, it's fun. it's awesome. Like it's, yeah. I saw every little branch open up, right? I remember, I remember when you yeah. built on the corner of Locust. Yep. Uh, I, my church used to own that property, I want to say. Oh, man. I think so, like back in the day, a huh. long, long time ago. And uh, and then building that one on Locust. And then remember when you moved to, like over into the Locust Grove, I believe, that mm-hmm. area, mm-hmm. and all your other branches. It's just kind of fun to see. Yeah, we, we played a little bit of chess with some of our moves. I bet. You have to. So was that difficult for you with so growing so fast, right? You're building your own buildings. Did you ever run out of space? We did. Yep. So the very first building we built in Twin Falls, right there on Falls and Locust, um, um, it's, you know, I have my business partner, Tyler Billings, and he, uh, he likes to say that he can predict things better than me, and I think he's pretty good at it, but he walked into the clinic that we had just built, and he said, we'll be out of space in one year. You watch. And we built it, we thought, for the future. And we, gosh, we were going to have four physical therapists in there. That's huge, you know, in our heads, right? Four whole PTs. And uh, within a year, we were out of space. So my neighbor, just to the back side of us or right side of us, uh, he, uh, he was a collector, a prolific collector, we'll call him. Not a hoarder, but a collector, okay? And he, uh, uh, I just went over and took him some cookies. And I said, hey, would you ever consider moving? And he did. And we bought that space and, and demoed it and built onto the new clinic. And sure enough, that's where the huge clinic on Falls and Locusts came from, was two separate projects that helped us. And then we ran out of space there. So that's where other clinics like the Jerome Clinic, the Kimberly Clinic opened. Is We just had such demand that I wasn't like, people always ask me, like, how big do you want to grow? And I've got two major philosophies. Number one is where there's a need, I try and fill it. And number two is if you're not growing, you're dying. I think I heard Robert Herjavec say it once, like, there's two types of people, those that are, that are growing and those that are too dumb to recognize they're dying. And those philosophies stick with me. So the growth that we have at RIPT is very much a function of we expand to fill the need, the need continues to grow, and we're no longer able to expand in the space. So we say, how do we serve the public better? So we go to different spaces that will get more centralized to where people are at and where their needs are. Right. That's how it's worked. Yeah. I, uh, I, I understand that. And the Magic Valley, it's you know, I mean, top 10 in, in the nation, right? For growth. It's, it's such a booming place that right. the need is just going to keep growing realistically. Mm-hmm. Do you see that continuing? Do you see yourself getting more and more branches out there? You know, there comes a time in business where you stop finding joy out of just replicating units, but the need still exists. Here's the thing. If you, as a, as a, as a business owner that builds a team, want your team to succeed and grow, you have to realize that you got to mold your skin. 
and you've got to get out of the way of their growth and you got to help people you know, if you keep a ceiling effect on it, then everybody that works with you that believed in the fact that you're a growth entity and now suddenly you, you change the game because you're like, I got what I want, I got what I need. You, you stop fulfilling the deeper purposes of what you're there for. And so, so in answer to your question is the absolute answer is yes to growth. Does that mean more units of, of clinics? Right now it does. Um, but that's because I've promised my shareholders, I've promised my partners, I've promised my community. We've, we have a vivid vision hung up in our company that just says like in the next three years, we are Idaho's most sought after PT company and everybody believes it. And the reason they do is because I believe it. And as a leader, if I believe it and people can see I really believe it by my actions, then they wanna get on board and they wanna grow with us. And so the minute that I stopped growth, and I tried it one year, by the way, Literally, I, we called it our year of roots. This was, I think, 2017. I stopped growth intentionally to try, and like, to try and like gain stability. And the problem with that is, is that you can't gain stability when you're not growing. It sounds almost ironic in some ways, but it was the worst year we'd had. So, so I have a reason to believe what I believe about growth. And, and just more units isn't growth to me. I mean, sometimes growth can be verticals. Sometimes growth can be um, changing the way you do things. I think, you know, we have to always reinvent how we serve people as long as we don't leave our principles on the table, you know, or leave them in the background, I should say. We've got to bring our principles there and, and allow change to be part of the process. So I'll, I'll be able to answer more clearly later, obviously, but uh, growth for me is not just pound, 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 let's get more clinics, let's get more clinics. It's let's serve more people. And so it might not be more clinics in the future. It might serve more people through a different medium. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. So why physical therapy in the first place? I mean, you could have done anything, right? right? Why, why choose physical therapy? Yeah. Well, if this is technically going to go on the podcast, I might regret saying it, but we had, uh, you know, when you're asked in high school what you want to be, I had too big of a list. And, and, and I'm just going to share with you that list. It was yeah. farmer. It was, I wanted to be a farmer. I wanted to be a country song writer. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to be a high school teacher, a basketball coach. I wanted to be a pediatrician, a dentist, a physical therapist. And, you know, I had, a, I think I had enough courage to be able to pivot quickly because I wanted to do a lot of different things. So when I, when I went into uh, one of my mother's doctor visits with her in Utah, she was getting a total knee. Um, I went in with her, I was 17 or something, and the, uh, or 18, and the doctor said, did you bring your physical therapist with you? And she laughed, she goes, no, this is my son. And he goes, man, he really looks like a physical therapist. And you know, for those out there that understand the power of manifesting and the power of words, those words had a big effect on me because I was already thinking like, I like physical therapy. I like the idea of medical. I like the idea of helping people through, in my opinion, one of the most value added medical professions in the world. I can't think of another medical profession that heals so thoroughly and so much at the root of the problem as PT. So I, I obviously believe in it. And, uh, and then getting reinforcement from people like, yeah, man, you, you know, you look like the type of guy that'd be a PT. And I, and in all honesty, when I finished school at, at PT school, I was very tempted to get out of it again because I was so disheartened by what I saw in my internships. No offense to anybody that I did internships with, but I couldn't stomach the idea of charging people what we were being charged or what they were being charged for really sort of like ancient uh, sort of traditional, we called it humming, heat ultrasound massage. 
And I was so disheartened by it that I'm like, I, I just, I don't know if I can do it. Ran into another PT group that uh, did it the way that I envisioned it in my head. And I thought this is how it should be done. And that's what I patterned. A lot of what I do after is like progressive resistive exercises that change somebody for the future for good. And yeah. once that happened, then I saw my desire to be an entrepreneur and I paired it with PT. And that's what helped me to create in the way that I do now. Yeah. So would you say you're a physical therapist or a business person? Yeah, I would. What I would say is I would say I am an entrepreneur of a physical therapy company. I, I'd still treat patients this morning I did, but I actually find more joy out of finding ways to help more people treat more patients. Cause you, yeah. you gotta understand like you start treating enough patients and you find satisfaction out of each one and it's a one-to-one -one satisfaction. But if you start to go, gosh, if I could somehow encapsulate what it is that I would love to see every patient experience, it drives you crazy being uh, almost trapped in the position of being a PT and not solving that issue for every PT that we work with. So that's why I'm in technology now. That's why I'm trying to figure out like, how do I solve all these problems for as many PTs as I can so that it can solve tens of thousands of patients' issues yeah. versus just the ones that I can treat every hour. Right. So that's why I wouldn't identify as a physical therapist first. Yeah. No, I agree. Your, your yeah. mission has grown to uh, helping one-to-one -one versus one-to-many. Yeah, right? I would say so. And, and really the most satisfaction and direct satisfaction is one-to-one. -one. When I finished with the patients this morning, you know, and I'm like, how are you feeling? Oh, I feel so good. Thank you so much. That's direct satisfaction. I don't get the same feedback when I, when I help thousands. It's like long drawn out. It can sometimes takes years to see the work that you do come to fruition. But when it does, it's like a flood. It's like you get hit. And, and, and that's when people come to you and say, you're so lucky. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's what happens. Yeah. That's when you hear the phrase like, you're so lucky or man, I wish I was as lucky as you. And it's like, well, you know, luck, I don't know what people say about luck, but luck doesn't just come. It takes years of foregoing the instant satisfaction in many cases. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I'm a big Dave Ramsey fan. He always says I've been working for 20 years to be an overnight success. Yeah, that's right. Like, I, I get that. I totally understand. That's right, man. So uh, yeah. back to Right PT early days. So you started in 2008. Mm -hmm. uh, what did you do to start? Did you literally just put a sign up and say, here we go, or talk yeah. about those early days? Yeah, the good old days, 2008. Um, so I partnered with a company right out of graduate school, okay. out of Boise. And... I had a two-year run with them. Basically, what happened was I was doing an internship at the time. I took that internship opportunity. They all, as a company, got to go to Cancun while I was the student, so I did not get to go. <laughs> and what I did was I took a, a one-week sabbatical away from the Boise Clinic because it was an open, and I went to Twin Falls here, and I um, did what's called a SWOT analysis. I, I did my own business plan. I kind of found out what I wanted to do. And in my mind, I was like, I'm just going to start a business right out of school. Crazy as it was, it was kind of unheard of for a lot of PTs. <laughs> I took it back to my mentor and my mentor was one of the big owners of that company. And he's like, this is brilliant. We'd love to take that clinic. We'll fund it. We'll partner with you. It happened so fast. I was like, okay. And I became a very tiny partner of that company. And over time, I noticed my values didn't align with theirs. I liked what they were doing as far as practically, but I didn't like the values. So eventually I said, look, it's time for me to go. I gave myself a three-month three notice. They said, you're done today. And, and, you know, no harm, no foul. That was their policy. But 
I was on the street without a job with, cause I don't, I don't like base my decisions based on what my outcomes are. I base my decisions on principles. A huge, a huge differentiator for me in my life has been making decisions on principles and not worrying about like all the outcomes. Right. And that's, it, it, it's how I define courage is like making decisions based on what's right. So I was on my ear without a job the very next day and sort of panicked and I found another job quickly. And, uh, and something in my soul said, you just need to stay in touch with them about this clinic. So they took it as a company from like however many visits we had and they cut it down to 33% of what it was. And so this was in a matter of six months and I heard word on the street that they were selling that clinic that I built with them. And I just said, look, I still have equity in the company. How about we trade my equity out for that? And they were still not very happy with me. And so they said, no. And uh, lo and behold, uh, that was a, kind of a scathing reality check. Like, you're not going to get this. Well, February 13th, 2008, the day before Valentine's Day, I got a call from the CEO of that company. And he said, you know, we're driving down tomorrow and we're either closing the doors or you're going to take over the company. And I said, okay, for, what's the proposition? And he said, this much money, this much equity. And, and I'm like in my head thinking, and the other option is for you to close the doors. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, it's not a very good bargaining chip. So I said, you're just going to wait. I'm just, yeah. I mean, yeah. you're either doing that or closing the doors. So what I said was take away that amount of money that you want me to buy it for and just exchange the equity I already own in the company and just exchange it for this clinic that I already built. And uh, he called me back and said, if you pick up the clinic tomorrow, it's yours. We'll exchange it. Uh, we, we signed papers on February 14th, the very next day. And then I had literally another job that I was still working. And then I took on this new clinic. Where was this clinic? This clinic was in Locust Grove Plaza. Okay. So uh, it was over, uh, yeah, Falls and Locust. And uh, it was a rental at the time. And so I took that over and um, I kind of had hoped to just do both jobs. So I was doing full-time with the job that I had as a PT. And then I was like, well, I can take on these 20, 30 patients that they have, no problem. Well, I didn't anticipate this, but the very first week I got 16 brand new patients. I did zero marketing. I, I guess, I don't know, call it karma. But 16 new patients came through the door, which equates to a lot more patient visits because they come three times a week. And so within a matter of two weeks, I had 17 new patient visits the next week. Within two weeks, I had probably three full-time jobs and it, it just grew so fast that I had to find PTs to try and help me. And I didn't know what I was doing with that. So I had to, I had to get more PTs coming my way. Anyway, that's how it happened. So when people say, how big do you want to grow? I was always just like, well, I don't know. I never, I never had planned to grow bigger than one clinic in my head. Uh, but the demand grew so big, so fast yeah. that you know, that I paid attention to it. And I said, well, there are people who want to work with me. There are people who need our services. Let's combine them. Let's find space for them. And that, that was the formula. Yeah. So what, 2008. Why? <laughs> let's say, let's say it this way. If, if competitors, for example, why do you think you grew at the pace that you did compared to other companies in the area? Right? Cause the need is there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Someone got the results, right, compared yeah. to other people. So what, what do you think the biggest difference was? Yeah, um, I think number one is honoring the value system that I had, truthfully. I think the roots of any plant are the most important part of growth, and the roots of any organization are your values and your purpose. And if your purpose is making money, you're already a bit of a gnarly root system. You know, no company can succeed without money, but it can't be your core purpose. Right. And so... 
you know, your core purpose and your values and then being true to them. Like attracting people who are slightly off from that and then saying, I'm gonna let you go. And even patience for that matter. I wasn't, I was picky about patience too. And you would think like saying no to certain patients, like, no, you really don't fit the mold. You're just coming in to maybe get more narcotics. So you have to check a box. So you're going to come see me. I'm like, no, that's not what we're here for. We're here to solve a long-term problem. We're not here just to let you go back to your doc and get more because you're checking that box, for example. And that's a sensitive subject, but you know, you can't grow anything in life without a strong root system. So I think that's probably one thing. I think another is um, staying true to my intention. My intention was to serve people and it wasn't to serve myself. So our purpose was to inspire people to create a life of joy, right? Um, our purpose wasn't make money and beat our competitors. And, and it helped also keep me a little bit pure to the fact that I didn't really see competitors, like you always have them in your peripheral vision because they're doing things that may impact your own growth. But what I actually saw was if I focused on winning with patients, if I focused on winning with the community, it never really detracted from my competitors. In fact, what I noticed was my competitors all grew to the degree that they wanted to as we came into those communities. And as I stayed away from petty arguments with them and I kind of you know, there's a favorite picture that I have in my office and it shows uh, Michael Phelps swimming in the, the latest Olympics that he swam in against Lance, uh, I think it's Lance LeClaw. But it showed him, Lance LeClaw was looking over at Michael Phelps during the race that Phelps won Yeah. after he was caught shadow boxing in front of Michael Phelps, right? And, uh, and the caption says, winners focus on winning and losers focus on winners. And I think for me, it's like, I'm not interested in what everybody else is doing. That doesn't mean that I'm not interested in them as people, but I don't, I don't need to try and like put myself in a higher than average position. I just need to make sure I'm doing the very best I can to serve people. And if that sounds cliche to a lot of people, that, that's literally the formula that worked for me. Maybe it's not what works for other people with growth, but that intention and staying on that intention every day and believing that we could do that I mean, if you don't believe you can grow and that you can serve more people, you're already shot, right? I think it was, um, well, I can't remember who it is. I, I think it's Maxwell, but he talks about three lids that uh, stop growth, three lids. Mm -hmm. One of them being the belief lid, one of them being operational lid, and one of them being leadership lid. And whichever one of those three is the lower of the three is gonna be your limiting factor. You will not grow any higher than that. And so pair my beliefs that I have a high set of beliefs with the fact that I believed in getting operations dialed in. And I believe that leadership was only as good as the philosophies behind leadership. So if we're a ceiling effect for our people that we're leading, I mean, how can we ever really truly lead them? We can't elevate ourselves unless we elevate other people. And so that philosophy means that I'm not gonna let leadership lead or belief lead be my limiting factor. If anything, it's gonna be operations. If anything, it's going to be how I do things. So, so when you get those lids out of the way, growth happens naturally. Like anything grows, growth doesn't happen because you pour more water on it or because you yell at it to grow faster or because you're like dumping more sun on it. You just got to make sure there's all the right things in place and let it do its thing. What, uh, do you have any examples where in Right PT in the early stages where there was a lid? And, and you were like, that's what it is, and removed it. Any examples? Sure. Oh, I love that. 
Yeah, uh, you know, I, I, I often think of like an airplane analogy, lift versus drag. Mm-hmm. Um, so what causes a plane to fly is how much force and thrust you have with lift. But a lot of times people forget that drag is fighting that. And um, two things resonate with me on what is a lid in our organization, right, PT. Number one is if I'm the leader, if I'm the president, CEO, and uh, I can't come to grips with the fact that whatever we're experiencing in right PT is because I'm the chokehold, then we're never going to get bigger. Because life is generous. It's going to keep teaching us the same lessons until we learn it. It's going to keep teaching us the same lesson until we learn it. So if I'm hitting the ceiling and I keep blaming it on my marketing director, or I blame it on my admin director, or I blame it on COVID or whatever else, you know, I'm never going to grow past the fact that I'm not learning the lesson life keeps trying to teach me. So I would say that that we have had lids before. One of them I just mentioned, right, previously, which was um, the year that we decided to stop growth intentionally so we could stabilize. I mean, we had not just lack of growth, we actually degrowth, if you want to call it that, like yeah. we actually went backward. And, um, and so that was me creating a chokehold out of my own philosophy. I would say another one on that lift drag concept is you sometimes have people in your organization that don't align with your values. They don't align with where you're going and you're afraid to lose them because they're producers. If you don't stay true and honorable to the fact that they're not right for your organization, regardless of how scared you are of the outcomes, it will consistently be the chokehold. So there have been times where I would remove somebody from the organization or they would remove themselves. And it was just like removing a ton of weight from a plane. It wasn't like we had to turn the thrusters on to grow. It just, the plane just took off higher. And literally it's probably one of the most profound lessons of my business career is this idea of like understanding when it's time to move on. Because you know, a lot of us get afraid of like, if I let somebody go, they're gonna talk bad about me. Or if I let somebody go, um, it's going to affect their life for the worst. And we got to stop playing, in my opinion, like playing like we're God over their lives. Yeah. We got to understand that what's best for the organization, even with regard to individual nuances, is best for the individual. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen that where we would remove somebody who was a, a chokehold in their post and watch the organization grow. And then over years, watch them and they would grow. It just having been released from a position that wasn't right for them either. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so- um, That's true leadership. It really is. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're helping them, you're serving. You're helping them. I, I've always said this, like I say this to my leaders all the time, the most charitable thing you can do for someone is help them be in a position that they thrive in. And thriving isn't just being happy, right? Thriving is being happy, doing good, feeling good, doing good, feeling good. So they might be feeling good, but they're not doing good. They can't stay in that position. They might be doing good, but they're not feeling good. It's not right for you to keep them in that position. So put people in a position to thrive and, and, and it works out very well. People will grow it for you. And then those people who are sabotaging you underneath, and maybe they don't know they're sabotaging you. Maybe they do. It doesn't matter. Whether they know it or not, you got to make sure that you can recognize as a leader when to pull them off. And I, I mean, honestly, it's the most ridiculous thing. We grow so much more when we do that. Yeah. So that's, it's, it's a unique concept and it's probably one of the hardest things that you do. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not fun to ever confront those things, but, um, but the more you recognize what good it does for the world, uh, the less hard it is, the less difficult it is. Because when you start playing games with your mind, you start telling yourself like I'm hurting somebody when in actuality, you're really not, you're hurting them by playing like you somehow have control over their lives. Like stop. 
once you recognize they're not right for your organization, you've got to make the right choice. Now, I'm not saying you just go plant the bomb once you make the strategy. You gotta, you gotta appropriately like strategically move those things. But, uh, but once you know, you gotta move in that direction. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, early days, you, you're pretty bold. You're pretty driven and you can tell you're going somewhere. So let's talk about your early life. What, yeah. what did it look like uh, as a kid? Who was Brian as a, as a little kid? Yeah, man. Well, my nickname was Bird. Um, and I, I've always, I always, because I grew up in the era with Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, and, okay. and I, and I love basketball. So I somehow in my head thought maybe it's because I was like a great basketball player like Larry Bird. But I asked my parents when I was younger, like, where'd that nickname come from? And they said, when you were little, like really little, like couldn't even walk, we had this problem where we'd come into the room that you were just in and the phone would be on the ground and, and the phone was clear up on the wall and we had no idea how you got the phone down because you couldn't. And it happened every time. So we just thought maybe he just grows wings and flies like a bird to go get those things. And yeah. so my nickname is as a youth, T-ball, youth basketball, that they'd always call me bird. And, uh, and you know, and they said that was very reflective of like my drive, right? So um, I used to walk into restaurants as a young child and with my, with my family and I would figure out in my head like how are they making a profit? In my head would just start trying to figure out like, how do they keep this going? Because in my childhood, I grew up with a lot of fear. Um, there was a lot of limiting belief that said like, we're not gonna have enough. We're not gonna make it. And I always had fear over that. I thought it was something that happened to you. And so as a youth, I was constantly trying to solve the problems that I, I felt like were happening in my family. So I was thinking through like, well, how does a person create value? How does a person create what other people appear to have where other people don't? Is it just a function of lottery? Do you just get a number when you come to earth and if they pick your number, you're lucky. And, uh, you know, truth be told, I was fairly shy and withdrawn. Okay. Like I had a drive. I was the type of kid that if I set my mind to something, I would drive and drive and drive until I got it. Um, so I, you know, an example of that was like in high school track, I, I was supposed to be doing long jump and triple jump because I did not like running. And one track meet, we didn't have enough runners in the meet. So I, my coach said, come run the two mile, come run the one mile as an untrained athlete. Like I had never run long distance. And he's like, you need to go hit these races. And um, I ran them and I ran a horrific like two mile. It was like 15 minutes, some odd seconds, which for a high school athlete is, is not athletic at all. And something about it, uh, enthralled me. So the very next meet, I'm like, I'm going to beat that by a minute. So I did 14 minutes. And the next meet, I was like 13 minutes. And I just kept beating it and beating it and beating it until eventually, um, you know, I got to within the 10 minutes. Right. And, uh, and literally, you know, the award that I got was like most improved. But so, so for me, it's always been about that. It's not about how you compare to other people. It's about how are you doing on your own trajectory? And that was me as a youth. Like I was very shy, withdrawn. I was very, uh, I wasn't as bold as I am now. But then uh, I found a lot of successful people that taught me that it's not about lottery. It's not about whether your number gets picked, it's about intention. And once I understand, understood intention, and it's funny how the word intention is so tightly connected to the word intense or intensity, mm -hmm. that's where I started saying, I'm gonna be the most intentional person. I'm gonna decide what I want to do and I'm going to do it with love and with respect, but I'm gonna do it. And anybody who wants to limit me, I'm sorry, but you're going to be removed from my path. And that doesn't mean I'm going to like do harm, but like if you're in the way of what I intend to do, 
Like that's where my boldness comes from. You have no place in that path. You have no business restricting me. And so intention and intensity, I think, fall together for that reason. And so that's where I become more bold over time is understanding like we get to choose our path. Yeah. yeah. Um, talk a little about that fear, right? So when those people are in your path and you have this mm-hmm. um, drive to, to, to push that aside or push that problem aside, where does that come from? Like, where like, does fear come from? Yeah, that fear for you, like that thing that happened. Yeah. Well, I think, I think there's a list on two columns. In my mind, I always draw two columns. I think there's limiting thoughts or limiting emotions, and then I think there's empowering emotions for every human on the planet. Yeah. And on the limiting emotions column, I put anxiety, fear, depression. I put uh, selfishness, uh, anger, you know, revenge. And then on the other one, just the opposite virtue, right? Like empowerment, sharing, giving, laughter, joy, peace, you know, patience. And I say like, what's the determining factor of whether I'm fearful or I'm happy or I'm empowered? And uh, what I started noticing is that external forces can create a situation where you go to your emotional home. And if my emotional home is consistently fear or anxiety, most any external force can put me there. So it can be, it can even be, you know, you could say something before we started this podcast where you're like, hey, Brian, um, look, I, I, I appreciate all you've done, but I, I'm concerned about the fact that these things have happened to your company. And I think, you know, you don't want to mention that in the podcast, which you didn't say, by the way. But, but that very thing, if my emotional home is fear and anxiety, it could put me in this very uptight position where I'm like, right. you know. And so, uh, so people can impose that on you and, in fact, daily do. And where does it come from? Everybody's filter is what they, they experience. So your, your filter of life is completely different than mine, even though we're at the same table here. Right. We're looking at life completely differently. And what we notice is completely different. And so your views, if I talk to you enough, they're going to they're gonna start to wear off on me. And so it is very much a derivative, like how we sense the world is very much a derivative of the top people that we associate with. I mean, I mean, all the gurus that I follow, they talk about that, like the top five people that you hang out with, they're pretty much the average of who you are. Yeah. And, uh, and so I lived around a lot of fear growing up from fearful people. Yeah. And I'm not just talking about my parents, like my parents are great people, but you know, when you're a kid, you pretty much get to be around the people that you grow up with. But then you get a choice. Like you get a choice to choose who you're around. Yep. And the more that I hang around empowered people, the more empowered I get. The more that I'm around people who fear and have anxiety over things and talk about the government and talk about taxes and talk about COVID, the more I'm starting to talk about taxes and COVID and I'm starting to get anxious and I'm starting to get pent up and I, I, I lose control over what I have a locus of control over. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, no, that's it's interesting because... Yeah we are shaped by the people around us, right? There's and, and zero when, question. And when you let them speak into your life or, or tell you what they believe and you listen, right, on a, on a way that you're, mm-hmm. you know, we, we all listen to people, but letting it come into your life is very different. May I tell a story about yeah. that real quick? Yeah. So real quick, close, close relative. I won't say who, yeah. close. But when I, I was making the decision to start Right PT, um, this individual told me, you cannot start Right PT because there is a, a certain competitor in town that will blow you out of the water. <laughs> and I won't name names on that competitor, but to, to this day, I often joke about it with my team and they're like, who is that? 
Nobody even knows that person, right? If I listen to that voice, you can't. You, you, you won't be able to make it. Guess what? Our thoughts expand. What I think about expands. And if I think about the fact that I can't, it's going to expand. But for whatever reason, I had had enough moxie to go, I don't believe that. I mean, something inside of me says, look at that person. Like, look at what I'm capable of. No way. No way am I going to accept that. Yeah. Was so, that and, faith? Was that guts? Yeah. yeah I, well, I mean, the guts are the action on that. The guts are the like, I'm going to do it. Right? Like, I'm going to, and then the, 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 the discipline and the grit to do it every day. Right? The faith is like starting to look around and go, there's a reason for me to believe otherwise. Like faith, faith that's blind is really difficult to put a lot of uh, power or draw power from because, you know, you don't have a lot of like reason to believe it. But there's some kind of an assurance that comes from faith that says like, if you believe this and you've seen it happen in your life before, there will be evidence. That's how I look at faith, right? You have this assurance that something's going to move you in that direction. Kind of like when you start what you start. Right. And then you start to see little itty bitty evidences stack up and then it gives you more faith to keep doing more things that are outside of your comfort zone. So from that perspective, it is faith. It's like, you're telling me, no, I can't, but something inside of me, which you can term faith says I can. And it's not just because I just am blindly saying that so that I don't have to listen to you. It's because I have enough evidence in my life that says I can. I've had enough experiences for me teeny little faith here, teeny little faith there. And then I got evidence of that being uh, rewarded. Right. Yeah. It, <laughs> entrepreneurs are funny that way because I feel like they, 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 you can almost say it's broken, right? They don't, they don't factor risk as much, right? They look at it and they say, that, oh, I could easy do that, right? It's just this <laughs> gut thing of like, I've never done that before, but yeah, I can do that. So when you were starting, right, PT, 2008, you picked up that clinic, right? And you, you had to hire PTs. Um, what push you forward? Like what gave you the belief that you could succeed or was it an accident? Yeah. Um, there are no accidents. Kung Fu Panda quote. Um, but yeah, no, I don't believe in accidents. Actually. I remember what I said earlier too. Like I had a premonition that, that I would have that clinic back, whatever that premonition is. I, I just, something inside says you will get this back, whatever that is. Um, but from the standpoint of pushing me on, you kind of, you sometimes look at the lesser of risks. As an entrepreneur, I don't think you're just averse to risk or just like roll the dice and who cares. At the point of my life, I had really nothing, truthfully. I really didn't have anything, any physical asset. If anything, I had debt. So you have to ask yourself this question. If I can risk it all that I have and go from debt to nothing, is that such a bad thing? <laughs> I think some of the best times to take risks are when you're like, you don't really have much. I, so I, it was when I was younger, you know, yeah. if I had to take the same risks now, you know, it'd be a lot more difficult, especially if I knew what I had to go through to get here. Cause it's not easy, right? Like yeah. if I had to repeat everything I did, I think I would say pass, get me a tent somewhere. I'll sleep. I'll sleep in the wilderness. You know, uh, I joke a little bit, but, but because I have learned what I have learned, if I start up a new business and I have started one or two, I can now apply that new learning and I don't have to go through the same suffering. So, so I think what it comes down to is, is looking at the less, lesser of risks and say like, what do I have to lose? Like, think of it this way, go out and buy a new Yukon. What are they like? 60, $70,000, right? Start up a new practice. 
But how many people are just cool signing their na- name to the dotted line to pay for a Yukon? Right. And they'll not follow their dreams, but they're not going to like put their name on the line for a business they can control. Now, there's another part to that, which is you have to do performance. I didn't know that word then. I didn't know what a performa was, but I knew how to build an Excel spreadsheet and say, let me project kind of what I'm going to make. Let me project kind of what I think my expenses are going to be. And let me project what I think my profits will be. And there's a great book that I love to read from Mike Michalowicz called Profit First. Love it. Mm -hmm. He basically says, flip it on its head. Take revenue, what you project. Take what you want to make for profits and then determine your expenses. Now, I've learned that after I started the company, but... A lot of people, if you're, if you're looking to like build a business, you know, it's such a brilliant idea. Like you, you know, adding more units of revenue to a problematic model is just adding more problems. Sure. Right. And so besides just like weighing the lesser of two risks, which is, I think, a, a quality that entrepreneurs need to have, you also need to have enough soundness to either get with a friend who's good at math and good with performers or do one yourself and, and take a, a, an educated look at like what you project you're going to do. And then when you do that, then everything is a weighted risk. At this point now, it's like, honestly, it's almost more risky for me to sit still and have a job. Right. And then you can say like, like fearlessly. And, and then what looks like fearless to other people on the outside is you just saying, I'm scared, but I'm less scared to do this than that. I think that's a good starting point for people too. Like, but you're never going to get started without like, trying some steps. And, and I also heard other entrepreneurs talk about the fact that if you're in sales, for example, and you're selling a widget that you've created, don't build this huge business model around it and then go and like go all in. Like sell a couple of them. Sell them. Sell them to people. I was selling PT to people through what I did in my previous job. I was People were loving what I was doing. I knew people would love what I did. That was the product, right? Mm-hmm. So I already knew people were going to love what I was doing to heal them. I already knew that. And then I started with me as a PT and then I added another and I knew what they, they were loving two of us. So, I mean, you know, like start to sell, you don't have to go huge right out the gate. Um, yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah. When you brought on that first PT, uh, what was the hardest part of bringing on your first team member? <laughs> well, I, the first PT member uh, was a contradiction of my values, right? So like the first PT mm-hmm. member was just somebody who didn't have a job or wanted to like leave and they were disgruntled and I brought him in and I didn't vet out I didn't know the interview process. I didn't know how to vet that out. And so uh, they were resistive consistently to where we were trying to go, consistently. And it was just, you know, there weren't fights, but there was just a constant knot tied up every day going to work. And my vision of the future was wake up Monday mornings and go TGIM. Like I wanted to go to work and be like, I love this. Now, do I love the weekends? Yeah, but I love work just as much. And I was not able to TGIM with that first person because they just, they just, they had just kind of a cantankerous way of being, you know? And um, so that was the hardest part was like vetting that out and, and understanding systems and processes. There weren't any. And so it's like, well, how do we do this? Well, I'll do it my way. You do it yours. I, I remember one time a patient walking in our clinic with that second PT patient walks in and says, I have scoliosis. Can you fix me? And I'm like, drooling over this patient because I know that there's so much false information out there about scoliosis and how it's treated. And I'm like, I can't wait because I know so much on how to help this person. And this PT is like, no, we don't really treat it. And, and I could hear it from across the hall, but I didn't want to like scold him in front of the patient. So I let the patient walk out. 
I walked out behind and said, I think there's some things we can do. Then later on, I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like the very thing I'm fighting to do to educate the public, to help them understand what we can do, this person is undermining it every step of the way. It's like I'm filling up a bucket and they're punching holes in it, you know? Yeah. And so part of it was we didn't vet out the proper kind of people because it was like I was desperate. Lesson number one, Mm -hmm. don't hire out of desperation. I know it sounds horrible. Like what are you going to do when you have three full-time jobs like I did? Well, slow down enough to like figure out the kind of person you want and then figure out how to get that person. Easier said than done, but that's a huge yeah. lesson. How long did it take you to uh, figure that out and get mm-hmm. the right people in place? I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you it's, a moving, it's a moving target, right? Like it's still going. Um, right PT has a very good culture. Culture is like the intersection between acknowledgement and accountability. So you first have to have an accountability structure because you can't just acknowledge good and bad and not have an accountability structure right? Mm -hmm. There is no such thing as culture without accountability. So you have to have an accountability structure. And people think of accountability as like discipline, scolding, getting people in trouble. Accountability is also rewards, bonuses, and promotions. So you got to have the whole accountability structure. Now, uh, I've spent well over a fortune on my education on that. I've gone to the world's best gurus on that very subject because my belief is when I die, the only thing I take with me is my mind. That's what I believe, right? But, but so it's not really interesting to me to just keep doing things in a dysfunctional way. So I spend a lot of my money on education for myself, a ton. Mm-hmm. And so, and my time too. So then I figured out an accountability structure from gurus. Um, my business partner, Tyler, he came in and he said, I'll take this part of operations. He had a very aligned philosophy. He was probably my first true aligned PT employee. And as a result of us being aligned and him becoming a partner over time and then us going to these educational processes of figuring out how to build an accountability structure, we started figuring out how we wanted to acknowledge people for good and for not so good. And when that happened, now you start to build a real true culture, right? And it's built. And that culture starts to take on a life of its own that when you look up, you say, how is this happening? How is... How is this, like, I've got over 100 employees and I'm like, how are they functioning with me here in the podcast? And I'm not talking to each one of them. In fact, I haven't met a lot of my employees. How's that happening? It's culture. Yeah. So I would say it's still happening and it always will, but um, we're the most dialed in we've ever been. And it probably took about four years, but I didn't have to. I don't think figuring that out is a function of time. I think it's a function of a good mentor. Right. Right. Mentors collapse time. A mentor isn't necessarily going to be like, teach me something so profound that like, I'm like, I would have never learned that without you. It's like, I might've learned it, but it may have taken me 10 years. And because you learned it over 10 years, you can tell me in a matter of 10 hours. And suddenly I now have something that took you 10 years to figure out. And I just figured it out in 10 hours. I mean, that's the beauty of mentorship, right? That's why this podcast is powerful. It's, it's, it's like getting a mentor for an hour, right? So everything I've shared, these are decades of horrible things happening to figure this out, right? Yeah. And they get it all for free on your podcast. Yeah, it's all the lessons that you learn, yeah. like falling off and messing up and figuring yeah, it out. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, long story short, I'd say about three to four years to really get something in place where you're like, and once we built the accountability structure, accountability structure, things took off. Like I'm a big believer too, that like when you're ready, business takes off. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like, if you're not ready, you don't have the infrastructure, how are you going to put weight on it? You have to have enough structure to hold it up. 
Mm-hmm. And so, so many people want to grow without having the right kind of roots. And if you've ever seen a tree or something that grows too much fruit and the root system's weak, it dies, it falls, it gets right. diseased. And so, you know, right. I'm, I'm huge in that. Or strong wind blows it over. Strong wind. Right? Yep. Yeah. So, uh, Tyler joins the team. What year did he join? He was about, he was somewhere in like 2010, 2011. 2011. He was my student. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how many team members at this time? At that time, we had three PTs and about, you know, uh, seven total employees, something like that. Okay. And mm-hmm. one clinic at the time? One clinic. Okay. Well, we had one other clinic in Kimberly, but um, it wasn't thriving at the time. And I had kind of a, another business partner that, again, same model, desperation, brought him in. We were friends. We, we are friends, but, uh, but not the right fit for the organization. And um, so Tyler came in and said, look, I don't understand why you who have these intentions are partnered with this person who clearly doesn't have those same intentions. And he just helped build clarity. And so Tyler's been a true business partner from the start. A lot of people ask like partner or solo. Solo, if you don't find the right person to partner with. (laughs) Partner, if you find the right person to partner with, I think it can be very prolific, especially if you get a good operating agreement in place. Yeah. I, I come from the no partner game. And, and that's just because sometimes I think, um, it's, if your if your values don't align to your point, like if they're not synonymous, if they're not perfectly aligned, then how do you make decisions off of principle? So are you and Tyler pretty aligned that way? We very much are like, um, you know, we have operating agreements that spell out worst case scenario between us Mm -hmm. and we've never, ever pulled them out once. Um, because if there is a slight disagreement, we counsel until we become unanimous and that's a rare gift. Um, I was very fortunate to get to partner with Tyler Billings because although we have a lot of personal differences in terms of how we do things, I, I call it yin and yang. Like he does a lot of things differently than me and I honor it. Um, and I do a lot of things better and different than he does. Like, you know, and so together we've been able to create something that if, without him, I wouldn't have been able to do a true synergy, a true, like one plus one equals three. Right. Um, that without him, right PT wouldn't be what it is today. And certainly without me, right PT wouldn't be what it is today. If you don't find that partner, solo is a great way to go. It's a great yeah. way to go. Um, so yeah, what, we partner in a lot. What has been the hardest conflict, the most difficult conflict between you and Tyler? Between us? Um, he is drastically better at golf than me. Drastically. <laughs> when I first met him, uh, we went golfing and we were on hole 15 on Canyon Springs. And we were talking about the longest drive we'd ever seen. And he, uh, he's like, well, let's go for it. You know, had the wind to our back, granted, but he drove the ball on a par five to the green, 450 some odd yards and uh, unheard of, right? You're joking. No, I'm not. That's a long hole. It's crazy. And I, I honestly was like screaming. Like I, we had people on either hole on the side and I was like, he hit the green. And they're just like, what are you talking about? The best part of it is, is that he four putted to get a par. So that was the best part. But, uh, but truth, truthfully, the hardest part is that sometimes I have to slow down my ambition for what I want because, because I want to move with a unified front. That's hard. Yeah. It's hard to like stop what your ideas are for a moment to respect somebody else. And that to me is a true uh, manifestation of mastermind. You've heard of mastermind, mm-hmm. which is like you get a group of people together and then what the mind says that everybody says together is higher than your own mind. And so it's, it's while you call it a struggle, it's actually more of a gift than it is a struggle, uh, truthfully. Yeah. And so, you know, I really don't have any true negative thing to say about that partnership, truly. Um, other than I've had to bridle my own ambitions 
when I didn't want to. He's had to bridle his, and we've had disagreements that took longer to get to a good conclusion. But in that length of conclusion, we came to something that was more sound. Yeah. Which is valuable. Right. Yeah. It's moving slower to make the right decision. Yeah. It's like as you get bigger, you, you want to move slow so you can move fast. You know, you want to make the right decisions by taking your time so that you can move faster. Yeah. It's just hard. Yeah. It's really hard. And now a word from our Ruckus Makers sponsors. Sometimes you just need a place to escape the rush of everyday life or a meeting spot where you can hang out and connect with your friends. Twin Beans Coffee Company is more than your favorite coffee shop. It's also a space where you can feel at ease and recharge. Slow down with our handmade crepes and our house roasted coffee. You deserve it. Milner's Gate is your downtown destination for house-brewed craft beer, a classic American bistro menu, and a welcoming atmosphere. The patio is perfect for date night, and the full downstairs with its private bar is ideal for your next company party or event. Take your evening out to the next level with Milner's Gate. Now, back to the show. So, moving on in the timeline, you're, you're working hard, right? You're still seeing patients every day, you know, you're still doing that. And so yeah. what, what did the next couple of years look like? Well, okay. So back up a little, I don't see patients every day. I see, okay. I'm probably like 5% patient care. Okay. Um, but, um, I was at one point and, and then what happened was, is we had to make a decision of when I worked on the business versus in the business. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs have to make that decision. Right. And you, you really, it's really hard to really truly grow a business versus just be self-employed if you don't make that jump. There's a distinction. Mm -hmm. A lot of people who are self-employed think I'm running a business, but I don't know if I agree with that. I think a business is something that can run and continue to produce while you're not there. Okay, that's my own philosophy, right? But if you don't decide to work on your business instead of in it, um, you know, how are you gonna how are you gonna give to the business, right? So there was a decision where it had to be like, well, patients really love you, Brian, you know, and and they're not gonna want to go to anybody else because that's what they tell you. Well, at some point you say, look, I know that we've built a relationship, but if you trust what I built here and you trust how we serve you, I'd like you to just try it out. And so we had to start like easing into that, dovetailing into that process. Yeah. So I went down to three days a week instead of five in the clinic. And then, excuse me, down to two days a week and then down to one. And, and you start to realize the patients are thriving with these other people that you've trained. And so, you know, the same thing had to happen for Tyler as well. Uh, at one point, we had this discussion as we grew into four clinics. So as we grew into four clinics, um, we had this discussion as an administrative group that said, like, like, we've got other clinics that need Tyler's help and for what he could offer. And they said, well, we can't let him come off the floor because the patients are getting such good experience from him. And this is like, in my opinion, every entrepreneur's fear of stopping what they're doing good at because they don't think anybody else can do it as good as them. And that's probably one of the biggest lies that an entrepreneur believes. They just don't understand. So we, we had to make the decision like, is it better that the other three clinics get to falter because he's here at this one? Or how about we give his mind and what he sees as being a, a good way to operate to all the clinics by getting him out of there and helping him like help these other clinics succeed. And every time we've made a move like that, our company has grown and our patients have gotten better experiences, ironically, if you want to call it that, or right. coincidentally, or whatever. Yeah. 
It's calculated. It's a choice. It's a choice. So was it hard for you to step away from the patient care? You know what I mean? So you're- I do. Like, those are relationships. Those are people yeah. that you, you care and trust and, and want yeah, to take Yeah, definitely hard. Yeah, you, you never, you almost feel like you're abandoning people and you have to like see it for what it is. You have to see like, I'm not abandoning you. I've set up resources for you and I'm checking in on you. So um, yeah, it was hard. Um, but, but I also really enjoy the fact that I could go from treating, because you know, a PT can only treat so many people. Because time, it takes about an hour for a full treatment, right? There's only so much time. So I can maybe see 60 per week tops, right? And so when I had more people that demanded what it was that we were giving, you have to make a choice like, am I really so good that I can't like get out of the way, let other people step into that role and provide their own unique personal authenticity to what they're doing? And so you have to get out of your own way. You have to get out of your own way. And now we're treating, like right now, I think we're treating like 1,200 people a week. And that wouldn't happen if you don't make choices like that. Right. So is it hard? Yeah, I think it's harder to take the alternative of, of being so self-centered about what I can provide and about my relationships with these people that I'm not willing to let other people take those relationships on and I can build a different kind of relationship. Yeah. I, uh, I, I think it's a mind shift, right? You're, you're, you, have to, you have to transition the way that you think about that well and realize said. you can help more people. Right, you can help more people by empowering your team to help them. Yep. That's quickly. And you do have to shift your mind. Yeah. yeah, it was definitely it was definitely a metamorphosis of mindset. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. So in those um, initial times, right when you when you were young and you were growing, how many hours a week were you working? Yeah, like in the first years, um, you know, I, I literally call it like the most crazy. I don't know what a better word is. It was like hellish. It yeah. just was because I didn't have training to understand what to do with it. I watched some other entrepreneurs, how they start up their business. And I, I envy that they started, started it with a better plan, right? And better mentorship. For me, I just jumped in and I was probably about 100 hours a week and um, probably could have done more if I would have let myself. But I believe in family too. But, you know, it, it, uh, it's, not, it's not necessarily the formula for success per se. I don't believe that more time into something like a startup is necessarily better, but you're kidding yourself if you don't think you're gonna put a lot of time in the beginning, even if that's not the absolute formula for success. It's a component, it's a part of the recipe. If I if I know if I knew then what I know now, I would change the way I do it. I would have gotten some investors to help me get like a basic pod of people that could do different tasks to start up. Um, and that so that I I didn't have to do three or four different jobs on the organization chart, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, and that would have been immensely helpful. Did you start with funding in the beginning? Or did you have investors early yeah, on? In the very beginning, I had two friends um, and um, I gave them each 6% for a certain chunk and um, they believed in me and I was so grateful for it. And uh, a year later, I had paid off my debts and I realized... Uh, you know, I, I don't want them to have equity because they're not building the company. So I said, look, would you be willing to have me buy you out for a, I, I bought them out for a, a significant amount more than what they bought in in a year. Good return on investment in one year. And they were both gracious and said, we get it. And we're happy to, to take the return on investment. And I'm really glad I did uh, because in the end, I, I think, you know, you never really want to give away equity like I did in the beginning. It, yeah. it was it was a function of false ideas of generosity and false ideas of what I had to do. Hmm. And so equity that you give out is consistently uh, a no-no when there's better ways to do it. 
And then, and then as you go, the right kind of equity, um, whether it's shadow stock or true equity, you know, there's a lot of ways to engineer that so it's done successfully. But yeah, that, right. that's how I'd look at it. Yeah. So if you were going to start again, you would do, like you said, an investor pool and yeah. then you would, you would staff up and go Definitely. for it. Yeah. And I wouldn't have given equity for that investor pool. Yeah. I would not have. I, I, I would have done, you know, interest, uh, payment of interest on, on that return for them. Yeah. And I probably would have paid far less if I'd have done it that way. And they would have been just as happy. I'm pretty sure of it because I invest that way now. I invest in businesses where I don't get any of the equity. In fact, I had one recently. I had the choice to have a big chunk of the business or I had a choice to just get a flat percentage of interest. And I chose the flat percentage of interest for cash flow. And that, you know, why? I mean, there's various reasons why, but all I'm saying is there's people for all kinds. You know, so right. there's people who want to invest all around us. And now with crowdfunding, totally different game. Yeah. Totally different game. Internet, crowdfunding, man, the world is at your fingertips to start something with zero money. Right. If you know what you're doing. Yeah. Or if you have an idea that you know what you're doing. Yeah. Right. I always say this. People buy from people they like and trust. Mm-hmm. Same thing, right? They'll invest in you if they believe in you. You said that you have two friends that believe in you. Mm-hmm. How awesome. That's You could call it lucky. You could call it relationship building. You could call it whatever yeah. you wanted, but that's incredible. Yeah, man. It's been a great blessing, so... Yeah. So, uh, where are you at today with Right PT? How many clinics and and yeah, we uh, currently members? operate fourteen clinics throughout Southern Idaho. Um, we've got two more that we're building right now. Um, and again, going back to that same vision that we have for the future, we're Idaho's most sought after PT company, and um, we're pure. You know, right now we treat orthopedics and uh, purely PT at this point, and. Gosh, I think as of yesterday, we have 40 physical therapists that work in our company. We have 12 partners, 13 partners. We got three more that want to join the team as a partner. Um, so we have a lot of momentum in that direction. Yeah. We're just going to keep growing. Yeah. When it gets hard throughout the last 12 years, mm-hmm. 13 years, 14 years, over that time, what kept you going? Right, yeah. you're, you're making money along the way. Mm-hmm. You're blessing people. You're helping people along the way. Yeah. When it's really dark and it's really hard, why do you keep going? Yeah, oh, I think those are man. These are great questions. What we think about expands. So you know, I had months where I was so full of anxiety. I mean, I gained, I'd say, a good seventy to eighty pounds over the first journey of my entrepreneurship. Now, is that purely just because you know I got older? No, heavens, no the anxiety was truly off the charts on some cases, right? And the money doesn't pay for it. There are days where you're just like, I was happier with a very small amount of things and a job and I didn't have to worry about it. But when you start focusing on like the people who are giving you feedback about how you've changed their lives, you start focusing on what you're doing in your own company and you start to see that you're changing the way it's operating. You can see progress. Then uh, it's, it's like anything else in life. When you can see that progress, and you put your focus on that progress as opposed to focus on the hardships, um, it literally is a game changer. It changes the entire physiology of your body. It changes how you function. It changes how empowered you feel when you wake up. So instead of waking up with dread, like, oh, I've got to meet 10,000 problems, you meet, you meet the day with excitement for what you can solve and for what things you're going to move it forward with. And so what we think about expands is literally the way that I handled and kept on like hanging on in those moments, right? Like, and I, I hate the word hanging on even because it's not really hanging on, it's moving your feet forward. 
Like it wasn't just like hanging in a spot going, I can endure this longer. Because if you're just enduring it, I think that's where we get burnout. But if you're actually changing the way, and if the more you think about it, so I'll say one more thing. One habit I do yearly is what I call ideal scening. I do it yearly. And what I do is I, I go to a place that I enjoy, whether it's the mountains, whether it's a cabin, whatever. And I will literally just take all distractions away and I'll not think of anything that my current situation is. And I'll just try and purely look at the ideal scene for my life. And I'll write it down. What is ideal? What is ideal? And I try to make it no strings attached. Because if you, if you attach strings like, well, I can't do that because I have this obligation. I can't do that because I have this obligation. You'll always be stuck yeah. with those same limits. So yearly, I'll write down my ideal scene. And what's funny is I can look back over the last however many years and I can see that I have literally created my ideal scene over time. Now, it wasn't immediate, but every year that I keep reassessing that ideal scene and it tweaks a little, the path is set, you start moving in that direction. Yeah. And not always do you write out how you're going to get to that ideal scene. I think sometimes that's a huge mistake. We, we call it the tyranny of how. The tyranny of how is how am I going to get to that ideal scene? It's like, when you start spending too much time trying to figure out how, you're hosed. And then you start dropping your expectations for what's ideal. Well, you're planted inside of you what's ideal for a reason. And if you honor it and you keep it in front of you, I call it soul writing. I'm gonna write down what's ideal for me. And then, and frankly, I also have a habit where I, where I write down daily what matters to me as well. But I don't get that clarity unless I step away right. for that yearly deal. Once I get that clarity, then I write it down every day. And, and lo and behold, man, the path is set. And every day is exciting when you do that instead of dreadworthy. Mm -hmm. Everybody's got problems. If you are alive, you've got problems. If you don't have problems, I'm pretty sure you're dead, yeah. which is a problem. <laughs> which is a problem. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, uh, I think it's unique. You fought hard and, and, and you look great. Like you look Thanks, healthy. Man. You look uh, present. Right, which is a big deal. You look at a lot, a lot of entrepreneurs and they're a little bit of a shell. They're a little empty just because of all the anxiety and all of the stress and, yeah, and, and I the can frustration. Mm -hmm. And uh, was there any times in your life where you had to go through that? And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and I know you mentioned that what you focus on is where you expand. Any examples though? Yeah. Um, I remember one day having to leave the clinic to go to a doctor's office to get an ECG. And um, He's like, I don't, I don't know if you're having a heart. The doc said, I don't know if you're having a heart attack or if you just have a really strong heart or if you have congestive heart failure. Like this uh, PQRS line is what they call it on an ECG is like really, really hard to detect what it is and we're going to have to get further testing. And I made a choice then and there. I think at the time, one of the Disney executives had died of a heart attack uh, at the time that I was getting that test. And it said like that news combined with what I was experiencing was like, like, where's this coming from? Where is, where is like everything that, ha that, that comes at me, having me drop all of my values, all, not all my values, but all of my like ideals and just like focus on that. And um, I made a decision. It must've been like five, six years ago, then and there that it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. I'm gonna do business. I'm gonna do the best I can. I may let down some people, but that's not my intention, but I will not let myself down. I will not let myself down because when you can't even think straight, you can't even enjoy going to a family reunion because you're so worried about all the things you have to do. Well, what kind of life is that? Like, right. like that's not what I went into business for. I went into business to have a fulfilling life. My purpose is to inspire you to create a life of joy. How am I going to inspire you if I am a shell? I am like fractured, right? And so, um, you know, I've, 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 
often said to myself, like nothing can replace happiness and peace with what I want to do. And so I, I stay very true to what it is I want to do. And if it means that I have to let down a few people, I do it. And that's not because I want to let them down, but it's because I believe I can serve everyone better in that state than I can if I'm fractured and trying so hard and gripping everything with all my might. Um, I'm much, much better as a human when I'm not gripping everything and fixing everything than I was, than I would be. I'm better now than I was then. Right. Yeah. I, uh, it's, it's unique. Like entrepreneurship is, is interesting that way because you set out on this journey to, to, to your words, to inspire people to live a life of joy. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's all you want to do. Like you just yeah. want to help people make that's some it. money along the way, serve some people. Simple plan. Right. Yep. And then, it, and then it pulls you in many, many directions, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to learn the process of healing and getting away and, That's right. and all that. It's unique. It's, it's kind of fun to watch. And I found that the best thing that has ever happened for me is, is looking at people who are doing it, entrepreneurship, but they're doing it in a very whole and happy fashion. Mm-hmm. So I've always you know, taught my teams, like, don't take advice from people you don't want to trade places with. Now, by that, I don't mean be prideful, you know, don't be meek. What I'm saying is like, if you see a heavy person and you want to lose weight and they're like, oh, I got this plan I'm doing, you know, thank you for what you've learned, but I want to find somebody who's fit that teaches me that. Okay. You have an entrepreneur that's like, I make so much money, but they're like, their life is in shambles surrounding that, you know, like keep them at arm's length, keep them further away than that even, uh, I try and get around people who like, I look at them and I'm like, you're fulfilled in your family relationships. You're fulfilled in your present day life. You, you're running a really solid business that has a good social mission and you're, you're changing the world for the better. We now in our world have unprecedented access to the best of the best. There is no reason we have to settle for the proximity of people around us. So I'm very careful just to like have people chirping in my ear about what they think needs to happen anymore. And again, you know, I believe that everybody has something to offer, but I'm going to intentionally choose my mentors. And so that has been so big for me is choosing people who I watch them and they're like incredibly powerful in those things. They're present, they're spiritual, they're happy. They have great relationships. They're making money, but they're giving it away. Like those people. I'm tapping into their books. I'm tapping into their podcasts. I'm tapping in. I'm actually going and flying to visit them, right? And I'm getting, you know, very close to what they're doing and figuring out, like, what's your world look like? And um, the best piece of advice I can give is, like, get around the best of the best for those people who show you what it is that you want to be like. Because, Because anything short of that, you're just sort of, like, wasting your time, you know? Yeah. It's a journey. Absolutely. It is. So what are you working on today? What are, what are projects that, that yep. Brian Wright's working on? Like I said before, like right physical therapy is the, uh, is the locus of, of what I'm really trying to improve, right? But as a result of that, we have a lot of, of um, places that we want to scratch, right? Like itches that we want to scratch. And when we do that, we find these sort of synergistic things that we do. So one of them is technology. I build a, a software called Profitic. I've got a really great team that's helping us to build that technology for all PTs around the country. The way that I look at it is simplicity on the other side of complexity. So we're taking the complexity of this technology and we're simplifying it down to like the most basic tenants and delivering that software to PTs around the country. Um, 
hasn't yet been launched, but we've been at it for a number of years. So that's been good. And what's the mission behind that? Yeah, the mission is to give the users goosebumps, uh, literally. Uh, I know that sounds funny, but we want the users to have goosebumps because they love how easy it is. We want them home at a, at a time that like when they're done with their last patient, they get to go home. And again, I want them going to their family reunions and enjoying their family reunions and not worrying about all the documentation they have. Um, and so the mission is, you know, empower people to live a much, much, much more simple life by automating as much as we can. Yeah. So that's that one. Um, beyond that, you know, I, I created a social mission for our company about three years ago that's uh, helping to protect the innocence of children. So we're trying to figure out how we can best do that. And I'm, I'm a novice. But at least for now, we're donating money toward as much as we know how to uh, toward saving children from trafficking. Yeah. Um, it's a big deal for us. So um, beyond that, uh, you know, f- obviously my physical health is huge to me. This month for my senior trip for my daughter, we're running three half marathons and then I'm climbing Mount Bora this month. And I just, you know, I put a lot of focus on my physical health because I actually show up better in everything else that way. And then as far as projects goes, I've got investments. I've got um, some venture capital that I do. And I find fulfillment out of mentoring these people. So I used to be that I mentored based on some kind of fee-based system. Actually, I mentored for free for a number of years. And then my time just got so usurped by it that I started charging for my mentorship. And then I started noticing that the people I charged for my mentorship, they, they picked and choose what I was telling them about the science of business. And it doesn't work that way. So I said, I'm no longer going to mentor people that pay me. I only want to partner with people that I mentor. So if anybody's like, oh, I want to partner with you or I want to mentor with you, I'm like, well, the rule is is that I'm going to partner. Kind of like Marcus Mm -hmm. Lamonis does, Mm -hmm. sort of like that. And so I do some venture capital that way where I'll mentor people on business so that their business thrives and I have a a piece of the equity of that. Right. Yeah. Okay. So there's and, enough going on. Yeah, you have a lot going on. Yeah. And, and then to, to talk about RightPT and how you grew, you said partnership, and that made me think of your partnership with U.S. Physical Therapy. Sure. Right? So, yeah, yeah. Which I think that really helped you do a lot of these things. So yeah. talk a little bit about that decision to partner with those guys to, to take it to the next level. I think another excellent question there because, you know, I don't think many entrepreneurs build a business going, I can't wait to sell this. Um, but... Uh, I read a book recently called Finish Big about five years ago. Mm -hmm. And it just teaches that when you build a business, you really want to build it for exit. And you're like, "Uh, hold on, I love my business. Why am I building it for exit? And I I like to rephrase that. I wanted to build my business for entry into other, other things that were important. And so for me, partnering with USPH was an opportunity to take the things that I was not great at, find nationally strong people that were good at those things, such as compliance, legal, other things. It wasn't necessarily that I was bad at them, but I didn't put energy into them. Right. And I wanted to focus on the operations. How do we treat patients better? How do we do better at reaching them? How do we do better at developing clinics? And I said, if I could put my energy into that and I could find a partner that can do this other part that I'm not good at, administration and things like that, this is a match made in heaven. So when I did that, it allowed me to free up some of myself free to focus on what it was that I was good at. So I'm actually better than ever at what I do at Right PT as a result. And a lot, of t- a lot of times I hear people in public say like, oh, you sold out to USBH. To me, selling out is I'm selling it so I can get money so I can leave. Look, I'm still young. I'm still young. 
I'm in this game for the long haul. So for me, when I partnered with them, it was this way to say, you take what it is I'm not good at that I don't like. I'm going to take what I'm good at and I'm going to expand that like crazy. And as I do that, I'm going to find other things that I feel like I need to be part of and I'm not going to be so tightly bound by this. When we look at a business as a child, so many times we call them our babies. Mm-hmm. I wonder what that does to our psychology to make us start to think in terms of, I need to serve this. Because look, with my children, like I'm thinking, how do I serve them, right? We can't forget, business is meant to serve us as well, right? It, it, the business is built so that it can serve your greater needs, your greater good. And it should serve people that you are, are you know, serving like within the business product or service. And it should serve the business owner too. And when that thing, that entity no longer holds you hostage, then it literally becomes a completely different way of living, right? So for me, it was huge in the ability to say like, don't grip this thing so tight that it's the only thing. Like I don't define myself as right PT, right? Mm-hmm. Like right PT is a massive, massive gift in my life, but it is not the only thing. And, and that really helped me. And unfortunately, that psychology is hard to gain sometimes when everything grips you. Like if something goes wrong, it could just turn the whole thing upside down and then you have to rebuild from scratch or whatever goes through our heads. And I was super grateful to have literally an army of hundreds of people on our side so that I can focus on the mission. And uh, what a what a beautiful thing it's been. Yeah. Yeah. It's do been you, hard too. Do you, what? well, what's been hard then? Yeah, I mean, uh, same thing as before. Like when you partner with other groups, like you're sort of beholden to their ideas too. So you got to partner to the right group. And I took three years to figure out that. Like it wasn't just, I woke up one day and said, I want a partner. I, I literally vetted out people for three years. And um, so the hard part is, is that sometimes they don't always have the same vision as you do. And, and when I say vision, I don't mean broad vision. I partnered with a group that had a broad vision that I did. But immediately, how do you go about doing stuff day to day? Sometimes they have a different way of doing it. And um, as long as we can both stay aligned on the broad vision, I don't mind in some cases being like okay with certain things that they're doing away. And, and as long as they know that I expect it to be a, a relationship that gives and takes, like any good relationship. Mm-hmm. So um, the hard part is, is just re- really kind of maturing into that role of like knowing that it's give and take and that, you know, you don't have to be like the boss of everything. And in fact, if you want to be the boss of everything, you get to hold the responsibility for everything. So if you want the rights to everything that you get to choose, you also have to take on the responsibilities of everything you have to choose. And for me, it's like, do I really want the responsibility of that decision, even though I think I know more? No. So I'm going to give that responsibility away. And that means I'm also giving the right to it away. Yeah. And that's okay. With, with them being in the picture, do they, uh, how, much, how much influence do they have over the local clinics, right? Yeah. So one of the things that I made sure of is that in our contracts, we were able to be us. You know, like if we can't be who we are, if we can't follow our social mission, if we can't give charitably to the communities, if I can't donate to teams, basketball teams, football teams, volleyball teams, if I can't market the way that we want to, if I can't continue to give to our, so we have this really cool program in my company called the Repaid Program. Repaid is fun because it stands for diaper backwards. So every time somebody in our company has a child, we give uh, diapers to their children. Well, to the parents. It's really more for the parents than the children. Children don't care if they have diapers or not, but we give the parents the diapers for two years. And that 
is, you know, important to me. And so if we partner with a company that's like, uh, that cuts into profits and uh, we're not okay with that, look, I'm out. Let me put the rest of my options because I still own a big chunk of RightPT. I'm going to put those options and uh, I'll build something that doesn't restrict me. They don't do that. They, they, and they let us be RightPT and they let us do what it is. They never tell us what we need to build each year. So each year I build a strategic plan just like I always have and I present it and I say, what do you guys think? And they're like, this is awesome. In fact, they're a national company and they uh, have often touted us as per capita one of the highest performing they've seen. And, you know, success leaves clues. And so uh, one of the things I love about this partnership is that they do not mess with successful formulas that are locally governed. Meaning, like, it might be different in New Jersey than it is in Idaho, and we know it is. So let us do it our way. And and they've been so honorable about that. And uh, not everybody has that same experience when they partner with a bigger company. Right. Right? Well, I think... Hostile takeovers are a real thing, they right? Are. And 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 sounds like you have a great partner. It's awesome. Let's put it this way too: like if you start your business with the idea that you're going to sell it someday, you now have the opportunity to either sell or not. But you have a machine that is built in such a way that you could, if you wanted to. That's the whole take-home point: like build your business so that it 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 it's prepared to sell, and then keep it the rest of your life if you want to. But here's the thing. At some point, you, the entrepreneur, the founder, the CEO, whatever you want to call yourself, are going to die. Harsh reality. Then what happens to that company? Then who takes it off? Your, your son, your daughter? Well, it depends on what kind of business you built. What if your son or daughter don't want to take it on? My children didn't really show a ton of affinity for it. And then do I really want to give it to them? Or do I want them to build something of their own? Or right. what? It's really a choice. But if you build it for that, you get to choose to take the exit ramp. You don't have to. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's really smart. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of listeners that are on that planning phase, right? They're they're listening to the podcast and and the whole thing is they're thinking about doing something. They're on Mm -hmm. the edge. What would you say to those people? When you say thinking about doing something, elaborate a little bit there. What do you mean? Yeah, they have missions. There's things in their heart. There's things that they've always dreamed about doing. Like like starting their business. Yeah, correct. And mm-hmm. maybe it's a business. Maybe it's a nonprofit. It could be uh, doing something special for someone, truthfully. But it, but it could be anything. Just that thing that's in them, and they're scared to do it. There's fear there, right? What would you say to them? Yeah. Oh, man. And so fear is an acronym that can mean many things, but I've heard it explained as face everything and rise face everything and rise. Look at it. What are you afraid of? Identify it. Write it down. Because when fear exists in our subconscious and we can't clearly identify it and confront it, it's always going to grip us. But when you can confront it, sometimes the fears that we have are really small. Sometimes they're big and we're like, okay, that's worth looking at. Right? So I'm not a big proponent of just overcome it and just go in headlong and ignore your fears. Like, no, your fears are telling you something. But my, my whole thought process is sometimes they're telling you BS. Sometimes they're giving you a wrong, faulty story. And so face everything and rise for me is like, look at what you want to do and then take a look at what's causing you fear. Like I had a business that I started that I was f- fearful of. And part of the reason I feared it is because I didn't think it had enough profit margin built in to be sustainable. Not profit margin so I can make money, but to be sustainable. Right. And that fear I didn't confront fully. And I started the business and the business uh, proved me right. I was fearful of something that it was a faulty model, right? And so it didn't really go so well. It lost some money, right? And I worked really hard to get it successful. 
And I worked really, really hard to keep going at it. And it just kept on feeding me the same story, which is, yeah, yeah, I mean, you can put that energy into this or you can put your energy into something that's much more productive, right? The other thing I would say, and I pull a lot of energy from Michael Hyatt's um, uh, Freedom Compass. He wrote a book called Free to Focus. And man, that book was my book of 2020. I loved it. Um, But he really calls out four quadrants, right? And it's the intersection of proficiency and passion. So you want to do something, I say you got to make sure that it falls into one of these four quadrants called desire. So he calls each of these four. So desire is the intersection between proficiency and passion, right? right? Mm -hmm. So that desire zone, if that's something that you can truly identify that you're proficient, which means you can make money at it, proficiency is a a deeper word. It means you can make money at it and you're good at it. So so you got to be good at it and you can make money at it. And then passion is I love it and my conscience says that it's good for the world. So when you take those two and the definitions of them and say those two intersect, then you have the desire quadrant. Right. What if you're just in what we call the uh, distracted zone? Distracted zone is one of the four quadrants that's um, basically you're passionate, but you're not proficient. Like how many of us do hobby horsing where we're trying to do something we love and we're like passionate about it? But when we look at it, we're really not proficient and it really doesn't make much money as we start to like dabble with it or try to figure it out. Right. Okay. And then there's the quadrant of disinterested and disinterested is basically you're proficient. You're really good at it. You can make money at it, but you just don't care. Don't put your energies into those two quadrants. Don't put it into distracted. Don't put it in disinterested. If you're fearful and you got yourself in those two quadrants thinking about starting something, I wouldn't do it. And then the fourth one is just called drudgery. You're not passionate. You're not proficient. But people keep telling you, you really ought to do it, Zach. You really ought to go into business. And you're like, I don't, I'm not good at it. And I, I am not passionate about it. Don't right. do it. So once you identify that you're in that desire zone, you're both passionate and proficient at it, or you think you have at least a base level of it, you don't know how deep you are there. And then you can like look at it on paper, like what are your fears? And you can identify them. Then go for it. Then go for it. Because I've had myself in all different quadrants before where it's like somebody gave me bad advice and just said, well, if you're afraid of it, it means you really need to do it. What, what kind of advice is that? Like, no, I'm afraid of a lot of things. I'm afraid of walking out in front of a semi truck. Sure. Like, I'm not going to go out and walk in front of it because it doesn't make sense. And I'm using a very ridiculous example to paint the picture that there are some things that you might just be getting a whim on. Okay, write it down. Does it keep showing up every day? Okay, pay attention to it, right? right. Yep. But, but uh, that would be my advice. I hope it's somewhat useful for some people out there. Looking back at the journey, if you could tell yourself one thing, mm-hmm. what would you say? I would say get a mentor. Find somebody who I respect doing, doing something the way that I want to do it and um, help them help me collapse time on it. Yeah. Because man, time flies so fast. And life just snaps by and you're like, if I can make less mistakes because somebody taught me all their mistakes and somebody taught me how to do it correctly, be just slightly less prideful, be slightly less inventing mediocrity instead of stealing genius, I would. And I think that that's, uh, you know, find a good mentor that you respect. And and I'd be careful to just find a mentor who just kind of has one component you like. Try and find somebody who who really embodies a lot of what you believe in. And in this day and age, it doesn't have to be somebody in your hometown. Right. Um, it can be somebody who's an author. It can be somebody who's a, a, a podcaster that you really resonate with. And see if you can find if they have programs. You know, If I was a singer-songwriter, um, 
you know, I wouldn't just go to my local singing teacher anymore. I would go to the favorite singer that I have, see if they have a program online, and I would go and I would subscribe to it. What a return on investment. Because I would want to learn right. from the best of the best. That's what yeah. I would think. Yeah. Well, you're incredible. Thanks, I, uh, Thank you for what you've done for our community. Thank you for for serving your team so well and, and taking care of them and building a culture that allows them to thrive while you're here doing this. So, so thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Zach, uh, just even asking these questions takes me down memory lane because it's rare. So this has been a treat, man. Yeah, I, I think sometimes entrepreneurs, you see them from the outside, right? You see all the work and all the hustle and I think these stories change people's lives. So yeah, man. Thanks for sharing yours with us. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Brian is a great example of when the leader gets better, the organization gets better. Wisdom poured out of Brian that comes from always trying to improve and betting on himself. What bets can you place on yourself? Life is short. Make a ruckus.